Hello, everyone. I'm John Wainwright, and this is the Cap Impact Podcast, a podcast by the Capital Center for Law and Policy at University of the Pacific, McGeorge School of Law. As promised, this week's episode is part two of the Journalism in the Era of Fake News panel. Last week was part one. That was the moderated discussion between Jonathan Weissman, John Myers, and Joe Matthews. Part two will be coming to you in just a minute, and this is the audience question portion of the event. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and I'll be back with you again at the end of today's show. Hands up, and I will I will come around. I saw you right away, sir. I'm holding. <laughs> I have an observation of a friend of question, and it relates to coverage of the law, uh, attorneys, and the courts. And the observation is this, at least in the print media on the local level, uh, you no longer have experts in the law. If you're getting washes of the Sacramento Bee are gone, and you have people cover the courts that really don't understand the law. And also, you don't get enough column space to really explain what happened. I have known the cases or been in the court, and I walk out the next day, I read an article, and it's like I was in a different place. Okay. Um, and so, the, the, and, and then the other observation is this when I see coverage, particularly in the United States Supreme Court, there is always a political spin on it. The reporters always have to say, all of the Republican, Republican appointees voted this way, and the Democratic appointees voted this way. I was on the court with People appointed by five different governors of different political philosophies, and there were ones that I see that politics ever got involved. It's maybe a jurisprudential philosophy. So my question is twofold. What doesn't the media, particularly print media or even any media, have an obligation of experts to cover these stories and report them accurately? And two, why is there this emphasis that it reduces it, it undermines credibility of the courts to try to publicize everything. I mean, why report that they're Republican appointees or Democrat appointees that, that rule in a particular favor? Why not just address the rule of law? Let, let me do the expert one too. And, and I've been in, in Judge Governor's courtroom before, in the appellate court, I've seen you work. And I consider myself somewhat uh, eager to understand things I don't know, but I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and I don't play one on television. I I think that the fundamental challenge for having an expert in something as uh, complex as the law is that um, uh, we don't pay enough. I mean, I work in television news, and when a starting salary for a television news reporter with that out of college is in the high 30s, low 40s, that person, you know, I mean, so if you want someone with a law degree or a law background, we don't pay it. Now, I'm not saying, you know, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm giving you the extreme bottom of the end. Obviously, a more experienced reporter will pay more. But, um, but, the, but the combination of pay and the aversion to specific beats for a long time in your career, reporters work their way up to get to a beat. They don't start on that beat. And um, when, when something's going down in a particular courtroom, uh, odds are, and I'm speaking from my broadcast experience now more than my print experience, uh, you have a reporter that comes in at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and there's a verdict in the trial at 4, and that person just walked in the door at 2. They, they have a thankless task. And I know that all of you have seen it from the other side, like, why the hell did they get it wrong? Let me defend that 28-year-old reporter who walked in the door at 2 o'clock in the newsroom. What is she going to do? to prep herself in time to be on the news at 5. And this is a broadcast issue. I think I'm showing my own broadcast, right? 
it's very, very hard. And and I don't have a great answer for it, but I do think um, I do think it starts with uh, money and expertise that the business doesn't seem to value enough. They should we should value it more, but we don't. The other parts I'll leave others to. Um, I mean, I think elite newspapers, his newspaper, as a Supreme Court and legal reporter's lawyer, uh, looked at right. Um, they had he has he was he was the New York Times corporate lawyer, and then when Adam Lipnick was actually the Times. It was the Times' corporate lawyer, and then when Linda Greenhouse, our longtime uh, Supreme Court reporter, decided to retire, Adam said, Hey, I'd like to but, but larger news organizations yeah, yeah. have that. They, they had, they had, you've had medical doctors report on things in there, you have scientists who scientists cover There have been efforts to try to do that. There's a there's an interesting thing in the University of Toronto that tries to keep people out of professional fields. They've actually had a lot of good. Um, a uh, lot with lawyers because apparently lawyers all hate being lawyers. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but other kinds of expertises and have tried to place them. They've actually had a, an odd collaboration with the Dallas Morning News that um, has turned a fair number of experts into journalists in Dallas. Um, but um, it, it would be great to do more of that. I think you could. I think you know. I mean, I live in a world of foundation funding and things, and I think you could probably fund more of that. You did ask about length of stories too, by the way. And I think um, there's a there's a whole universe of metrics and research about the length of a the story. There's um, counterintuitive stuff that some very long stories are so compelling people will read the whole thing on their phone. But there but there is a, a a big interesting debate about that that I didn't really realize, and I realized it in broadcast about the length of a story on TV. I didn't really realize it until I went to the Times. The 600 word, 800 word, 900 word story. Please, God, don't make it 1400 words. Um, you know, and and I mean, we're we're in this really weird period of people trying to find the sweet spot for the device that I just talked about. Even though that should not be the metric by a good story, but it becomes the metric in the world that we live in. Well, I I, I want to say something about that. I, I, look. In our world, we, we want to give more information, not less. And I will always, I, I think that everybody should know that. I'm sorry, I, I absolutely disagree with you on that. I think we should say, this is a most important lawyer, this is a, this is a regular public lawyer, this is a, an Obama public lawyer. Absolutely. What, what, what is the harm of that? I do well, not believe the harm is. The harm is that it undermines public confidence and forces that they think the decisions are political when they're not political. <laughs> There, there are bases on the uh, Some people will say that they are political. I'll tell you, they're not. But I do. They're a matter of who the person is, what jurisprudential philosophy that they have, what life experience they have. It's not because they're an R or a D. It seems well, it does not seem coincidental that Republicans, more recently, Republican appointed uh, Supreme Court justices and Democratic appointed. Uh, appointed Supreme Court justices do tend to fall on two different sides of store of, of, of cases, not always. And in fact, when it's not always, it's really inconstructive that you have, you know, an eight nothing decision. Or, uh, and if you like the, the decision, um, decision on uh, the um, the governor of Virginia's case, uh, corruption case. Um, that was a that was a unanimous decision because it was a unanimous decision. It was all the more important. To know that these are these were Republican appointees and Democratic appointees, I I just think that that's that is 
it is up to the it, readers can decipher that. I don't I don't think it's our job to decide. Well, we don't want to warp their mind, their pretty little minds by telling them. Or with the older sure whites, are they very black men who are suitors? I know I know why they're because the presidents are doing a better job in vetting the candidates to get the type of people that they're spending funds to be one. I hope thoroughly. I, I was a reporter for a long time now. I run the news bureau for the university, so this is really an interesting and fascinating for me. Um, at my first newspaper, the Moyer Register, we had uh, very strict standards about quoting public officials. Um, my question is, what is with the obsession, both broadcast and newspaper, with quoting the president on Twitter? And do you think that if you as journalists would stop repeating everything he spews on Twitter, that that might reduce the power of why? I mean, back in the day, if you were, if I was going to quote the governor, I'd have to verify that quote with the press office and yes, he said this at such and such event. It doesn't seem to me that that standard exists anymore because of Twitter. It's a good point, and I think I see it differently. And I think my difference is, for decades, we have quoted a press release quote from someone. For decades. And I, and I was a broadcast reporter who hated it because it didn't work for me. I didn't have anybody on camera or on tape, and my newspaper colleagues would use it. The ginned up quote that somebody would send me from State Senator Joe Smith, and it would say the following. And it wasn't, I mean, the verifiable level of that to me is the same as Twitter. I, I, I just kind of unfortunately think that if the President of the United States had a, was off mic, like we were here, and said what he said today, or, well, that actually wasn't Twitter. But whatever he said, you know, someone would say, well, he wasn't really talking to a reporter there. He wasn't really, you know, and are you sure that was his voice? I mean, there were a lot of voices in there. We would endeavor to report that. And I think he has to stand accountable for the Twitter feed. I think, come hell or high water, the Twitter feed is his. The better question for me is, why doesn't he turn the Twitter feed off? <laughs> and he won't turn it off because it... It, it, it's his only chance to be who he wants to be, for whatever reason he wants to be that guy. And I just, I could not, I could not in good conscience not report what is supposedly attributable to the President of the United States. Whatever he says, it's his. He's got to own it. I would defend, and I'm not a defender of the journalistic profession, I consider yeah, myself a charter member of journalists who hate journalists. Self-loathing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Definitely a self-hating journalist. But I would say, I, I, you know, it's okay, we publish mostly non-journalists. We publish lots of scholars, and then all kinds of people from our expert life, our theories, people who know something best. We publish on every possible subject, from place about places all over the world, art, science, like, and I would say, last year, as an editor in Tiner Stories, my biggest hitting, and my, I think I spend most of my time doing, is taking mention, gratuitous mentions of Trump out of story. I mean, tell people when you sign a story, and these are regular people, these are not journalists, right? Everyone wants to stick Trump references in the story. Uh, it is, it is an epidemic. He has a mind share that is, it's, it's unreal. It's stories that have nothing to do with Trump. Um, it's, it's unbelievable when it happens. Um, and a story about Saudi Arabian art, I was editing recently, that I had to take over a Trump reference on. 
<laughs> I want to know what it was. <laughs> I've got two more questions, and, and then we'll see if we have time for a third. So we'll try to keep answers. Just get a cocktail and sit back down. This may be a little off topic, but could you discuss uh, the evidence associated with state campaigns and fake news and their impact on American institutions? Uh, you know, I. Uh, I already mentioned earlier, Scott Shane, uh, who's one of our investigative reporters, has really burrowed in on uh, fake news on Facebook. And um, he, he was talking about, just the other day, when we were doing a panel, and he was talking about the sheer number of people who saw either Facebook ads or Facebook articles that were put in by the Russians. And it is staggering. There's 125 million people were, I think I can't remember the, 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 great, the great word that Facebook used, I think it was service by the Russian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is, that is, it was half, it was basically half the adult population of the United States had, had seen Russian, uh, Russian content uh, that, was, that was put into Facebook. And if you think about uh, that, that President Trump won the presidency, uh, I mean, his, his losing margin was the largest losing margin of a winning president since 1876. And his winning margin in three states, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, and uh, Pennsylvania, was about the number of people who fit into Lambeau Field every Sunday. It, you can't say for sure that the Russians won the election for him, but you can't say they didn't. Uh, you, can't, you simply cannot because of the just staggering amount of material that actually got Facebook before people, and you're you're still seeing it right now. The Russians are trying to are trying to throw the uh, election in Estonia, and you know we don't know exactly what they're going to do in 2018, but we know that very little has been done to stop them. Um, I'm not sure what the Russians would want to do. We don't know if they would if. if if disruption is what they want, do they want Democrats to win this time? Uh, or do they want, well, I don't know. We don't know. Um, but we do know that uh, they are relentless and they're still very much out there because uh, the federal government has done very, very little to try to reverse the time. As Scully answered your question, a lot of the research on this is new. Um, but that what early research has suggests that we're actually pretty good at discerning fake news and not being too affected by it. Or much more affected by news that is not fake, that is real or truthful, but highlights things that are so that are out of the ordinary, extreme, and thus give us an incorrect or mis misinformation about what is really true. Um, and that that I think is a more the, the real news is more dangerous than the fake news as far as we know. Uh, I'm gonna leave that there. That's so Hi, thank you for being here. My name is Catherine. I, you guys all seem very altruistic in your motives behind news, which is counterintuitive for me in regards to fake news. I was wondering if you could speak to sort of um, public expectation concerning journalists and trust with the public between the, the news that's put out, especially amongst um, polarity in news sources and sort of how to differentiate between those and and the environment with all of those issues? Oh, you 
you know, history of McCallum, there's no place like on earth like it. It's, it's a love. I just love this place, what it means, its history, its present, and people. And I think do this, there has to be a love of something, and that, for me, it's really a love of this place. Uh, let me see if I can be short here, because um, I don't have the, uh, <laughs> got that large family apparently. Um, I got into journalism 24 years ago, and, uh, and I think I was very idealistic, and I used to tell people, I think it's a public service. I want to do it because I think it's a public service. And then I got way the hell away from that, and it becomes competitive, and it becomes Lots of other things, and now as I'm as I'm approaching the other end of the career, I go back to the public service moment because I think there's value in explaining the world to people. Um, the thing I was struck with really quickly, little words here, because I know I'm going to get cut off. But to Jonathan's point, what's that? You're not going to get cut off. Okay. But to Jonathan's point, we are super competitive, but I do lament that we can't find where to cooperate and where to be competitive. Even the Post and the Times have somewhat cooperated and competed back and forth with the Trump uh, administration news out of there. We do collaborate sometimes. It's called the Associated Press. We run the AP Wire sometimes. When the AP Wire goes up on something that I don't want to write out of our bureau, I'm like, thank God for the AP. Because then we don't all have to go replicate that story and we can go spend some other time. So I do wish, as we look for these models in this new era of, of journalism, we could find ways to uh, collaborate uh, and compete at different times, if we could work on that a little bit. Um, but the other part I would say is, you know, I know that one of the kind of the subtext of this whole evening about fake news is that this is such a particularly polarized, tense, unsettled time. And I think a lot of journalists feel it. Um, I think you've seen uh, content in our newspapers and on broadcast that you've never seen before. I think you've seen um, a particularly sharp poke back, push back at a leader uh, who I think has pushed and brought it in ways that others haven't. Um, but it's it's unsettling. It's really unsettling for a lot of people. I was unsettled, just to be personal for a moment, when uh, I saw that a subsidiary of Walmart was selling online a t-shirt that had a tree and a noose, and it said, tree wrote journalist, some assembly required. And I'm like, Great. You know, I've got an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old will be ten tomorrow. And that's an unsettling moment for me as a parent, as a professional, that someone would see it that way. I still think it's a public service. I still think there is context and explanation we can offer. I know we can do better. I know, and this is the great thing about being in a room of lawyers. All lawyers don't speak for each one of you in here, right? <laughs> right. All journalists don't speak for me. And all journalists don't speak for every news organization. We need to do better about the people in our profession. Um, they don't do a good job, but I don't throw that out. I don't throw that baby out, so to speak. I think that there is still value in what we're doing. We've got to find a way to connect. We have to find a way to tell those stories. I think a lot of it is a public service. So maybe I'm older and now naive yet again in some way. I want to take one moment to thank you all so much for being here. This was a really interesting. Hello again, everyone. Thanks to all of our amazing panelists, John, Jonathan, and Joe, for making the journalism in the era of fake news panel in the past couple episodes the fun ride that they have been. As always, if you enjoyed today's show, please take the time to leave us that five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. 
and subscribe to the Cap Impact Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen, please subscribe. That's going to make it so much easier for folks to find our show. And for more content like this, please check out capimpactca.com, which is our blog, and it is updated every day. You can stay in touch with us either in the comments on any of the posts on capimpactca.com or on Facebook and Twitter. Just like Cap Impact on Facebook or follow at Cap Impact CA on Twitter. Or maybe you don't want to uh, you know, interact with an impersonal sounding page on Facebook or Twitter. Hit me up directly. I'm at John underscore Wainwright on Twitter. There's no H in John and that's Wainwright like the pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals or the musician Rufus or the World War II general in the Pacific Theater. Last but not least, thank you to the Capital Center for Law and Policy at McGeorge School of Law for making this podcast possible. You can learn more about the Capital Center online at go.mcgeorge.edu slash Capital Center, and that is capital with an A. Thanks again for listening to today's show. Talk to you again next week.